At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. One day, a kid picked a fight with me at school by punching me in the back of the neck with a sharp pencil when the teacher's back was turned. At recess, I proceeded to give him a good licking. Word later got home to my folks via the teacher, and some of the boy's friends put me to blame. So they made me go across town and apologize to his mother. I went across town all right, knocked on the door, and I apologized to his mother. The kid stuck his head around her shoulder and he thumbed his nose at me, so I reached up and glommed onto him and proceeded to give him another good licking until his mother beat me off with a broom. Daniel Boone, Jim Bridger, Davy Crockett, America has produced some real characters, and this is another one of them, Elmer Keith. Hell, I was there. If you don't know Elmer Keith, you probably want to get to because this gun nut was a quite the throwback character. He was born in 1899 in Hardin, Missouri. And when he was about 11 years old, after the school incident, by the way, <laughs> his folks moved the whole family out to Montana. And it was a wild pioneer place in those days. There were no cars, just horses. They got out there on the train and they switched to horses and they proceeded to lead one heck of a wild and crazy life. Elmer Keith is known as the father of the 44 Remington Magnum cartridge and the 338 Reming uh, and the 338 Winchester Magnum cartridge and several others. He was a gun rider, he was a rancher, he was a cowboy, he was a bronc buster, he was a hunting guide, a hunting camp cook, a salmon river wilderness raft guide, a farmer, and a gunslinger to a degree. And this is what's so fascinating about the guy. All of that wrapped up to, I think he was five foot four, maybe five foot six. They say he had a bit of a Napoleon complex. He always wore this great big 10-gallon hat to sort of compensate. Had a big cigar in his mouth and rather gruff attitude, they say. But he really knew his stuff. And he was the real deal. He was tough as nails and had gone through all the things that they say he had. And he's written about them in this autobiography. Hell, I was there. They say he didn't like the title of the book, but the editor insisted. If you want to read a heck of an interesting story about a 20th century American character who is really wrapped up in guns, this is the one to get. If you can find a copy. I don't know if it is still in print or not. Now, Elmer was not a great writer. He never graduated from high school. 
but he really knew his stuff and he was a straight shooter as much as anyone knows. <laughs> but I think he maybe told a few tall tales along the line and some of them are in here that I question. What I want to do today is read some more from his book and get a feel for the man and inspire you to go out and pick this copy up and read it for yourselves because it is quite entertaining. I've read it several times and I'll probably read it again because they don't build them like this anymore. Of course, the day and the age were quite different, too. He got into fights quite often, and that's probably part of his short stature. But he also was almost burned to death when he was about 11, 12 years old, when they just moved out to Montana. His father had them in a boarding house that was several stories high, and there a fire started, and the boys were on the third floor. The parents were in the only other available room at the time on the floor underneath them. And by the time his father got ladders up to that third floor to get that boy out, he was unconscious, lying on the floor, very badly burned. Right side, shoulder, leg, face, hand. The left hand was burnt so bad that it grew, bent over, he said in the book, like a claw. And he was so embarrassed by that, after about a year, he asked his dad to break it and put it back into position. So, so so, he gave this 12-year-old boy some old granddad whiskey and told him to get good and drunk because he was going to do this right there at the ranch house and cut the skin that had adhered from the wrist up to his fingers. And the boy, of course, passed out. And when he woke up, he said his father had put his arm between two pieces of mink stretchers. If you've ever been a trapper and stretched mink, there's a nice thin board that's the shape you want that you put the hide over. So he put two of those boards, one on either side of that hand, and left it like that for two weeks. And his mother was begging the boy to let her take the bandages off and freshen them up, but he did not want to chance his hand flipping back again, so he he left it until no one could stand the stench anymore. They finally took it off, and by golly, his hand stayed straight. So his mother then wrapped it in deer tallow, and he wore gloves on it. And he started to work that hand, and he would try to work with a handgun and try to function with it, and he would work with broncos using that hand until he just toughed it out until it was functional again. That's how tough the guy was. There were incidents where he froze both feet so hard that his dad had to thaw him out with coal oil and he stayed out of school for two weeks and all sorts of crazy tales. Here's another one when he was in the eighth grade. About that time, this kid, Leighton Burley, decided to write on my collar. He was sitting behind him at school, I guess. And I, I uh, told him to quit it and I hauled off and I hit him with everything I had right on the edge of his jaw. I knocked him out of the chair and over by the door and he went to sleep. Mrs. Richmond jumped up and down in her high-heeled laced shoes and she told me off in good shape and she rushed around to Professor Roberts' office. Professor Roberts came back to look the situation over. He looked at me, he looked at my collar, and he said, what did you do, Elmer? Well, I couldn't get him to stop it, so I figured I'd better stop him. <laughs> well, he said, I think you did a good job. <laughs> However, Mrs. Richmond flunked me in algebra anyway. <laughs> What a character. That sort of sets the stage for, I think, for a lot of his character. He was just always feisty and willing to take you on. And later in life, when he was a gunwriter at Guns and Ammo magazine and American Rifleman, he sort of got into a grudge match with Jack O'Connor, the other dean of American gunwriters at the time. And they were sort of on opposite sides of the fence. How much of this was genuine versus built up for the public, I don't know, but 
Jack, of course, was highly educated. He was a college professor and Elmer was anything but. So there could have been a little bit of animosity based on that. Um, Elmer probably thought Jack was a little uppity and Jack probably thought Elmer was uh, an old hick. I mean, he probably was, but that old hick was the real deal. He, he could do just about anything with a horse, with a camp, with game, and uh, with his guns. And that's what made him so popular. So some of the other stories I want to read about him help paint his his philosophy, how he got to be who he was. He was the, the big bullet guy. He liked a lot of velocity and liked a big, heavy bullet. He once called the 270 adequate as a coyote rifle. <laughs> so that gives you an idea. But given the, the age back there in the early part of the 20th century when it was still pretty wild, you were on the edge of doing a lot of gunslinging, shall we say. And Elmer was pretty much always ready with a six-gun on his hip. If you pushed him a little bit too far, he might just challenge you with that, not just his fists. So you really got some interesting stories out of that. One of the craziest was he was delivering papers. So I don't know, he might have been 13, 14 years old. He's in Helena delivering papers door to door, and he notices a robbery going on in the uh, saloon in town. So he tells the cop or the sheriff, and uh, the sheriff says, well, Elmer, I'm going to go in there, see if I can't settle this, but uh, you best run down and get uh, the 10-gauge from my friend and come back here and cover the door, back door in case anybody tries to run out. He's asking a 14, 13-year-old kid to cover the back doors. <laughs> You got to read this stuff, I'm telling you. So I'll, I'll pick a little bit up here. So Bill, that was the officer. Bill went in the front door. He went in. I rode alongside to see what was going on. A man whirled around and he shot at Bill, but he hit the transom over the door. Both of the bad guys then jumped over the counter of the bar and everyone else fell flat on the floor. One man raised up over the bar and he aimed at Bill. But before he could shoot, Bill hit him right between the eyes with that old forty-five, and he collapsed. The other ran down the back bar, and I yelled at Bill to watch the opening. I don't know whether he heard me or not, but anyways, he swung and leveled his gun at that opening, and the other man was crouched down low, running behind the bar, and when he crossed the opening, Bill took him through both shoulders with a big forty-five Colt. He fell on his face while one leg came up in the air and stayed there. As soon as I saw the thing was over, I rode around to the front, and Bill came out, and he says, Elmer, go down to the depot and have the bartender phone for the coroner. <laughs> Can you imagine such a thing in this day and age? Not even close. So that was Elmer in the early years. Well, he grew up on these ranches with his father and his mother and his brother and just got into all kinds of adventures. You can imagine as a kid back in those days on the ranch, he was hunting elk and deer and pronghorn and jackrabbits and coyotes. And they shot anything they considered to be a varmint, including golden eagles. So it, it just really reflects the differences in time as well as attitude. What's another story I wanted to read to you guys? The Canuck fight. There was this character about his age, and they didn't get along very well. And they got into some fights until this Canuck guy, that's what his nickname was, I guess, became a serious threat. And he, and he threatened to kill Elmer after Elmer knocked him out in a fight or something. 
So it says here that uh, Canuck marched up to me as soon as he spotted me, and he jerked that old New Service 3840 of his, jammed it in my belly, and he started to say, I'm going to kill you. But I hit him under the chin so hard that he sailed out between the car tracks. His gun clattered off to one side of him. He sat up, and he was holding his head. I was standing there low and balanced, and I thought if he made a move for the gun, I'd just jump up and see if I couldn't kick his head off with my steel-capped boot. Well, while I was watching him, his friend came up behind me and hit me in the mouth and knocked me clear back into the plate glass window of the store. <laughs> so after that, he started carrying his forty-five and he took it to school. <laughs> and uh, the teacher was concerned and the sheriff had told uh, the professor or the uh, superintendent of the school that Elmer could carry that gun to school because his life had been threatened by this Canuck character, and he had to defend himself. So they let him keep the gun in his desk at school in Helena, Montana. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it makes for a fun story. Now, I want to talk about some of the later things in life that made Elmer such an, a proponent of big, heavy bullets didn't want anything to do with, for instance, the 270, as I said. But he got to designing a lot of bullets and cartridges along with some of the other, shall we say, wildcatters of the day. And that's how he came up with these ideas and these cartridges. He didn't design them all by himself, but he would say, hey, I think we should make them a little bit longer and be able to shoot this bullet to this velocity and all this and that. And the reason was because he was shooting stuff backwards, he didn't wait for that perfect broadside shot the way we do today. He would crest a ridge, see an elk running out there at three, 400 yards and start banging away at it. <laughs> so I want to read a few of those incidents here. There's one on page 44 of an elk running away. Let's see if I can find that one. Hey, join my sensor-free platform, RSO TV, and you can see my videos ad-free. And we've got stuff on guns and handloads and shooting and hunting tactics and optics and deep dives into products and more. So check it out. Join RSO TV, just $5 a month. We'd love to have you. Now, Elmer had been tracking some elk along the edge of Yellowstone National Park, trying to catch up with them at crack of dawn in heavy snow. And he was quite a ways up the mountain. As soon as daylight arrived and I could see my sights, I picked up the trail, went downwind on it, and I started circling. Finally, I got a glimpse of two elk. Just as I raised my rifle, one turned and ran around a tree. I caught him in the left flank with a 220-grain 30-06, and down he went, but he was up instantly and gone. I picked up their tracks and began trailing them. And then he trails them, and he trails them, and he trails them. And he gets another shot in at the elk running away. And he trails, and he trails, and he gets another shot into the elk as it's running away and he finally gets it and when he butchers it he finds that the 30-06 220 grain bullets have gone into the rump and then up into the paunch and that as far as they got so he said the 30-06 is not nearly an adequate elk rifle well that might explain part of the reason why elmer <laughs> you were shooting them backwards oh and he seemed to do that quite often here's one on page 100 that i found and on this one, shoots a elk in the neck. Now, here's why I sometimes question whether Elmer is telling the whole truth or nothing but the truth. He tells a story about an elk that he shot backwards again. <laughs> and when he's put the fifth or sixth shot into it with his poor 30 out 6 
to little effect. It spins around so that he can shoot it in the neck, and then he drops it on the spot instantly. And then when he butchered it, he discovered that I had hit him square in the neck. And for some unknown reason, that bow tail bullet traveled the length of the spine and came out over the root of the tail, killing him instantly. Now, I've done a fair bit of hunting, and I've shot some animals in the spine, and I really question whether any bullet can travel the length of the spine of an elk and come out the tail end. I once put a all-copper bullet with lead in the shank. It was the XP3 bullet from Winchester. Extremely hard, tough bullet. 270 WSM, and I had a feral hog on a culling operation running away from me, and I put it up the backside like Elmer liked to do, and it went along the spine. And if I remember right, it took out four or five vertebrae, emerged, hit the neck, and went into the head and came out and lodged in front of the nose. And I was amazed at the kind of penetration I got from that bullet. He was shooting a match bullet, a match bullet. And it, and I just, I think maybe he's stretching the truth a few times. Now, this is one a story in which he is a guide and his client is shooting a 757 Mauser. Does not list which bullet. Oh, he does too. It's a 139 grain, seven millimeter bullet. And he said that the, uh, the client got a shot at a nice buck at about 250 yards. He hit him in the neck and it took off a vertebrae and over an inch of spinal cord. The buck dropped, laid there, and while we were crossing the gulch to get him, he jumped up and took off again. I don't understand how you can take an inch of spine out of a buck in the neck and have it jump up and run off. I have had deer get stunned with a neck shot that missed the spine and the vertebrae, and it got up and ran off. But once you break that spine and or vertebrae in it, that buck isn't going anywhere. So, I don't know about that one either. Now, this incident is... Uh, involves a grizzly bear. I think it was up in British Columbia. And he saw, he and his partner, Wes Brown, came over a rise and they saw a bear way out there. So they sneaked closer. But he says here that there was still a good 500 yards to go. And Wes says, can you hit him? I said, I'm sure I can hit him all right, but I don't know how this gun will do at that distance. So I held up over him at his rump as he turned digging and I hit him. We heard the plunk of the bullet, and he rolled. Then he got up and went around the side hill. I held over him again, enough to drop the bullet in, but in my haste, I forgot to lead. I shot right behind him. The next shot, however, I led him, held over, and I rolled him. He got up, and he started over the hill. I hit him in the rump again, and down he went again, and then he went over the shoulder of the mountain and out of the sight. Anyway, I had 380-grain open-point boat tails in him. <laughs> Once again... 500-yard shot of the grizzly bear's rump. <laughs> so this explains to me why Elmer was such a fan of big, heavy bullets at high velocity. He was asking him to do a lot. <laughs> so the next time you uh, wonder why Elmer was such an advocate of big bores, big bullets, and a lot of velocity, that's part of the answer right there. Now, this is not to denigrate the man. You know, in his day and age, this is in the first half of the 20th century, probably even in the 30s and 40s at the latest, before he became a little more experienced, I think. Because in the end of the book, he does make some commentary about how he does not believe that we should be taking long shots. 600 yards is probably as far as you want to do it. 
But that brings up one of his most famous shots. 600 yards, mule deer, handgun, 44. <laughs> it, prob- it wasn't a 44 Rem Mag because that hadn't been created yet. It was one of his experimental cartridges, and I think it was a 44 Special that he loaded hot because he saw that the revolvers he was using had a lot thicker walls in chambers and he could handle more pressure and that's why he was advocating for that that in a cartridge that became the 44 Remington Magnum higher velocities he was looking for about 250 grain bullet going 1200 feet per second Remington eventually came out with one that went 1500 feet per second in the 44 Magnum but at any rate he's out with another client or a family friend or somebody who hits and wounds a deer and Elmer comes running up and says what's going on he says I think I hit that buck out there he's going up over the hill and the guy shoots and misses some more or ran out of ammunition or something. So Elmer, all he had was his forty-four. So he pulls it out, says, you mind if I get in on this? <laughs> and he shoots and the, the guy says, I saw the mud kick up beneath him. Aims a little higher, shoots again. I don't know. He says, you might have hit him. I thought I heard a plunk. At any rate, Elmer shoots four times at this buck running up the hill. They paced it off or roughly estimated it at 600 yards and hit him two out of four shots. They found his bullets in the recovered animal afterwards. And there's been a lot of discussion about him pulling a quick one on us with that story. But apparently it's been it's been done several times. Guys will take 44s out and try shots like that, and the bullet can certainly get there. And Elmer was one heck of a shot with his handguns. He could he won all kinds of tricky contests. He was at Camp Perry shooting for the uh, Idaho and Andor Utah teams. He was uh, an inspector at the Ogden Arsenal during World War II, inspecting rifles and all kinds of munitions and stuff. He worked some at Frankfurt Ar- Arsenal in Pennsylvania, The guy was no fly-by-nighter. He absolutely knew his stuff. And what I think I admire most about him was his just downright toughness. This guy was, you know, you say, well, he was a cowboy. That that means something. A real cowboy, not your Saturday night cowboy, (laughs) but a real cowboy who had to live out in the brush in the woods. I've done a fair amount of hunting and horse riding, backpack hunts, horse pack hunts and whatnot, and just putting... Taking care of the horses after a hard day's hunt is exhausting. And this guy was taking pack strings of 10, 12 animals, loading all the gear, hauling them back into forest service camps and whatnot, and then shooting elk to provide meat for folks. And it was quite a deal. So Elmer eventually married, had some children, settled down, moved to Idaho, lived for a time in western Idaho along the Oregon border. I think he even lived across the other side of the Snake River in Oregon for a time, and eventually landed in Salmon, Idaho, had a ranch there along the Salmon River. That's where he started guiding hunters in that country up in the mountains, and then he started doing the big raft trips down the Salmon River, and in those days, it was a one-way trip. You got this great big scow with this huge rudder on the back, and about all you could do is control which way you went down through the rapids. And he would take hunters into that country on those rafts and then take them out the backside, which would take you out to what was now Riggins on the other side. So, uh, yeah, he, he was a wild man, and he really knew how to handle himself in a handgun. Um, you need to read the book. I mean, that's that's the only solution here, guys. You don't want to hear me going on and on about it when you can read it from the horse's mouth. And as I may have mentioned earlier, he was 
reportedly one terrible writer. The editors just hated to edit his copy because <laughs> his grammar was atrocious, his spelling was atrocious. He didn't punctuate, I guess. It sounds pretty miserable, but the stories he had are so authentic, which is why I brought up Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and stuff in the, at the start of this. He's an icon. He's an all-American icon. Where else do you meet characters like this? It's uh, a throwback for sure, and I don't think we're going to see the likes of him again. So if you want a great read, check it out. Elmer lived until he was 84 years old in Salmon, Idaho, and he was revered by many, <laughs> disliked by a few, I suppose, but uh, you've got to appreciate what the man did, put up with, learned, suffering extreme burns in a fire when he was a child and having all those fights and getting almost involved in some gunslinging incidents on the streets and whatnot. What a character. What a character. So hats off to Elmer and all of his fans. He still has thousands and thousands of fans who just absolutely revere his work. He wrote many other books too. The Probably the most famous of them is Six Guns. You might want to look for those, too. Uh, some of them still may be in print. If not, you're probably going to have to pay a pretty good price to find them. We're going to look a few up. If we can find this title, especially, we'll put it in the link here for you guys so you can find it. Um, I guess I can't tell you what that link would be on a podcast, so I'm not sure what we're going to do. I will ask my team. Uh, otherwise, check back with ronspomeroutdoors.com. Maybe we can find the book, put it on my website, and then you can find it there and order it. Um, and that's kind of my introduction to all of you who don't know about Elmer Keith. And for those of you who do and have some stories to share about him, I still occasionally run into folks who bumped into Elmer when they were younger and when he was in his older age, and they have quite the stories to tell. So if you'd like to share some of those with us in the comments here on our YouTube podcast channel, we'd love to hear them. Oh, you can also go to ronspomeroutdoors.com and send us some comments there. Until next time, this is Ron Spomer on Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast, telling you that if I ever write an autobiography, I'm not going to call it, hell, I was there. I'll probably have to call it, Heck, I wasn't anywhere close to there. <laughs> See you next time. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.